TED Audio Collective. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Design Matters will be back with new episodes in mid-September. In the meantime, we'd like to rerun an episode that originally came out in November of 2018. The work itself has to be flowing, has to be, so much is about something unexpected happening and you being alert enough to catch that moment of uh, unexpectedness. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, Debbie talks to illustrator Christoph Niemann about the importance of immediate feedback. Having a, a small group of people that know how to critique you is a huge asset. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive, like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. 
On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? His work is frequently on the covers of the New York Times Magazine and The New Yorker, and he created The New Yorker's first augmented reality cover. His illustrations and artwork have been featured in museums and galleries. He has authored many books, and he has a column for The New York Times Magazine called Abstract Sunday. He's also co-created a few children's apps. His clients include Hermes, Google, and the Museum of Modern Art. If that weren't enough, he once ran the New York City Marathon while sketching it. He is Christoph Niemann, and he joins me to talk about his singular career as an artistic superhero. Christoph, you can hang your cape up over there, and welcome to Design Matters. It's fantastic to be back. Christoph, what's up with your interest in Tom Selleck and Magnum P.I.? It's not even an interest. I grew up with that. It just <laughs> it was like one of the things you never questioned. I was on TV. There was a character that just like... Not a friend, but it was just like something that's part of my cultural vernacular, even though I grew up in Germany. And so this it's not a particular admiration you have for Tom Selleck or his mustache. Not at all. No, it's really, there's something, you know, when you grow up with Sesame Street or with certain kind of music, that's usually the culture I'm most interested in, something that you don't pick or that you don't particularly like, but it's just around you. I was surprised by that. In any case, Christoph, you haven't been on Design Matters since my second season back in 2006. And in your recent appearance on the Netflix original series, Abstract, you posed a very specific question I'd like to ask you. You asked yourself, if you were to meet your 2006 self now, who would beat who in a bar fight? And I was wondering, thinking back to the experience we had back in 2006, then and now, if you were to meet in this studio, who would win in that bar fight? Okay, we have to specify it's a creative bar fight. Like a real <laughs> bar fight, I think, strength-wise, oh, the, the 2006 so. version would win. I think I'm faster. I've, I've been running a lot more, so I could run away f- faster from my 2006 uh, version. Creatively, I have absolutely no idea. I've, it was a different world. I was doing such different work. And I think in terms of kind of the fast deadline-driven editorial work, I think I was probably as good as I could be at that time in my life. And now the world has changed and my work has changed. So I think watercolor-wise, I would take myself from back then on these days. It's interesting. I was reading the transcript of our interview from back then. And you had just published 100% Evil with Nicholas Blechman. And I thought, well, that would still resonate today, maybe even more so. It's true. And that this book series was so fantastic. And in a way, we did this because it was fun and because we love books and doing books. And 
in a way, it really feels when I think back, that seems like something I would do today because Absolutely. we didn't do it with any, without any goal. But it, that's why it seems so valid. So when I when I hold that book and you know, I talk with uh, Nicholas about this, like we have to do more of that or reprint this or. Absolutely. So back in 2006, I wasn't conducting my interviews quite in the same way I do now. So you never really got the full-on Design Matters deep dive. So you okay with doing that now? Absolutely. Okay. So you were born in Weiblingen, West Germany. Is it true that your favorite childhood memory is riding the train with your dad? Yes. What about it was so special for you? was this idea of traveling, of being in a different space, you know, being with my father. But there was something with, with trains where it's not about the place you go, but maybe just like being in transition, like a train being a system, but also being possibilities. Like you're in a train, the train could go anywhere. And technically the, the train tracks, you could take them from Vladivostok to the south of Spain, anywhere. And I mean, that's me trying to interpret something. In there. It's just a fascination. Some people love soccer or certain kind of music. And for me, there was something I was just absolutely in awe of. And it's something that when I take a train today, I still love it. And I can totally draw a straight line from back then. Given your love of the New York City subway system and your book on the subway and Lego and the tile pattern in your bathroom in Berlin, I'm assuming that your children might also say the same thing one day when they're grown up about their favorite memories with you? When they when they were small and they were growing up here and they were two and four children, you think you control them, but they turn out to be their own people. So like you, you realize after a month that they control you, if anything, and not the other way around. So I never assumed that I could take my obsessions and my love for certain things and say like, oh, kids, why don't we try this? And it, was, it really happened naturally that when I would take them to a museum that they said, We'd rather stay on the train, actually, and then just, like, do loops for the entire weekend. And I, I was like, okay, I'm fine with that. My wife would never, ever, you know, ride the subway for fun for, like, four or five hours. But I was perfectly happy. When did you first begin to draw in your life? Were you a very little boy? I asked my mom once, and she said, like, with, like, three or four, apparently I asked for pencils. And then my brother, he's, like, a year older, so we almost grew up as twins. He just, like, took the pencils, and he was much better than I was. But we had this kind of ongoing fun competition all the way. But, yeah, I draw since I can think. There was not a time where I didn't draw in my memory. Given that he thought he was better. No, he was better. He didn't think he was better. He was. I look at the drawings, and mine were very straightforward. You draw the grass, and then you draw the sky, and then you draw the, the sun in the corner. And my brother, he would break out of that system. He would really be much more creative in terms of like how he would approach things. And I was like very much like how it was supposed to be done, how I saw it with, with other kids or maybe the kindergarten teachers, and I tried to emulate that. So when did you or your parents or your family or your brother realize that you did have exceptional talent? No, my, my parents, they didn't have an artistic background, but they never forced us one way or another to say like, oh, this is an insane career profession. And definitely at the time, it was not. Today, when you say, I want to be a designer, it seems like a fairly straightforward professional choice, which back then it wasn't. So they never said, oh, you should not do that. And my, my brother ended up doing special effects in movies. You know, that was an even crazier career choice in the, in the late 90s. But for me, it, there was never a question I would not, do some sort of kind of like illustration drawing profession. It was just, that's what I did. You studied graphic design at the Stuttgart State Academy of Fine Arts and Design because at that time it wasn't possible to study illustration. I think it still isn't. How come? 
it's just that illustration is seen as part of what they call uh, visual communication. And so you spend the first two years doing life drawing, typography, animation, and photography. And, and all these uh, uh, things are the foundation to then, after the fifth semester, go into illustration, editorial design, graphic design, and so forth. And in retrospect, I'm so happy that I wasn't allowed to just spend my time drawing, but get a peek in all these other different uh, fields, which really informed the way I work uh, uh, so deeply. Michael Beirut has said that he sometimes wishes he studied anything but graphic design so that he'd have a more robust background. Not that he needs anything more robust about his background. That would be scary. It yeah. puts me to shame anyway. Um, one of your teachers at Stuttgart was Heinz Edelman, who you've described as someone who didn't teach by encouragement. His idea of a compliment was stating that he didn't have a problem with something. You've described his critiques as something like this. No, no no, 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 this one is okay, no, no, no. Was that hard for you? It was incredibly hard. But I will have to say, and that really makes him sound just harsh and evil, and he's, he was really one of the nicest, most charming people I know. And apart from a lot of other things, I have to credit him, not only with me, I know that really uh, comes for a lot of other students of his, introducing me, really introducing me to literature, to modern art, to a lot of concepts of what visuals can do. And he would do that by just telling stories, showing us books. And it was like the mid-90s. He was the one who introduced us to Chris Ware. Oh, wow. And it's really embarrassing that you're like, we were like 20-something students, and he comes in and is like, I just found this guy. And it was really very early on. He was like, you should look at this guy. He's really good. And we we're all just sitting there, our draws on the floor. And so it was like from that to literature to landscape painting, Renaissance, he would bring in all this stuff, and it was just... So he brought the world to life. That really, he really brought the world to life, which maybe we should have done by ourselves, but we didn't. And it was just really when it came to the actual work, that was his philosophy. That this is like the job is so hard. There's like nobody's waiting for you. If you need somebody else to say, "Oh, it'll be great," and yeah, then that's awesome. Even though it isn't, um, you're not going to last. He also told you that you will be surprised at how many problems can be solved by hard work. And have you found that to be true? It, I got to say, that's uh, he said a couple of these kind of smart quips, but that was like probably one of the best ones. And it's also a good one to remind yourself when you're stuck in something that the one way out of a ditch is really just working and that somehow always solves things. I don't think that anything can replace a strong work ethic, no matter how much talent you have in the long run. Oh, I think even the short run. Okay, um, good. I, th I think talent, <laughs> the talent really is like what, what brings... Let's say you're eight and you're talented. That usually means that you can keep up with an 11-year-old and then, you know, so forth. But very, very quickly, you come to a level where no talent in the world, it's too hard to, because so much of what we do is about consistency. It's not about the lucky shot. The lucky shot you can probably do with talent, but our job is to do it every day and do it consistent and to promise things, which I think is the most difficult part about what we do promising something and delivering on something you cannot do with talent. You need craft and you need the experience and just doing it over and over again. While you were in school, you were working in a, initially in a very realistic manner. When and how did that change? There was absolutely Edelman's credit. In the, uh, in the first uh, four semesters, I was drawing. I was so happy that I could for once in my life just spend all my time drawing. We did kind of like you know, new drawings, portraits, caricatures. I did all that. And for, for once, I could just really dive in there. And I, I was probably 
in terms of kind of like doing very realistic stuff better than any time in my life. And so I would I come to this other class. It was like a different part of town. And there's all these kind of older students and they're doing work that seemed exciting, but I didn't really get it. Because for me, really drawing meant realistic, as many highlights as possible, impressing people with your drawing craft. And I just didn't get it. And I remember him going through my portfolio and go like, really just like, oh, one of those again. Um, <laughs> That's and, really and harsh. I'm really, and, and this is one of the few things I can really say I'm proud of, that I really felt, okay, I can give this a year. And then I can still change classes and do something else. I have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. I didn't really get whenever he showed something. I didn't really know why that was supposed to be good. And that was really when I started doing these exercises. Um, he would give us a certain topic. And then I would just do stacks and stacks of papers. And he would just go through it, as you uh, described earlier. And the weird thing, it was not only difficult that he only picked one in 30, but I had no idea why he picked that one. I didn't know why. Did you ask him? Yeah, kind of. But there was, there was like no, you know, you cannot ask somebody about a drawing. You have to kind of get it. And it was really six months, seven months, eight months, when very slowly I understood this whole idea that a drawing communicates something other than that you can draw. That it's about an idea and that the craft, the drawing, the line is something that is the supporting cast for, some, for an idea, for a joke or for something serious, for a twist that happens with the viewer. This whole idea was completely foreign to me. While you were in school, you had two summer internships in the United States. One was with illustrator Paul Davis, and the other was with Paula Scher, the legendary designer who was already a legend when you became an intern at Pentagram. What was it like working for the two of them? It was absolutely magic. And with Paul, he had his studio in Soho or like by, by uh, West 4th Street. It was like more of a kind of family situation it was a smaller studio with just like four or five people. And they were just like so nice. Like Myrna, his wife, and, and Paul, they kind of would bring me to art director's club lunches. And all of a sudden I got to meet Fred Woodward. And so That was going to be my next question. How did it, you get the first illustration no, job with Rolling Stone? Okay, and, it, and, it, and it was just so, I mean, it was really, like, really kind of like them taking me under their wing, like, you know, like a foreign student, which I was. And then at Pentagram, there was, of course, then the, the year after, it was a totally different world where all of a sudden you just walk to the copy machine. And there's it's Woody Pirtle and Michael Beirut. And you just, you, you can't believe that all of a sudden you sit next to them uh, during lunch. It was absolutely mind-blowing. What kind of work did you do with Paula? Design work. I even like worked on some, some public theater posters. I did, of course, the, the thing that you do as an intern when you have a fundraiser, and then at the back you have to put all the sponsors. It starts with 100 names, and at some point you, it's like there's more and more names, so at some point you have to put five-and-a-half-point type, and you get like, more and more <laughs> columns squeezed in there. So the, we, we did quite a bit of that, too. Oh, I wish that something like that was on your website. <laughs> During those internships, you started to get your first illustration jobs, obviously with Fred Woodward at Rolling Stone um, and also the New York Times Book Review. How were you getting those first commissions? Well, Paul introduced me to Fred at an art director's club thing. And then I think I think he had said, like, oh, why don't you ask him whether you can bring by your portfolio? And so I, I went there to Rolling Stone on Sixth Avenue with my book. And I was, of course, incredibly nervous with, you know, like the Rolling Stone and this incredible reputation for really cutting-edge illustration every week. And he looked at the book and it was, like, very nice and kind. And then I left. And we two days before I left, the phone rang and it was Fred on the phone and... I didn't, my English was so bad, I didn't really understand anything he said, except for I knew he wanted a drawing of some sorts and that he would send a fax. 
And I was just so scared. My concern was less with the drawing, but rather with just kind of screwing everything up and ruining my career before it even started by not being up to the task. What was the drawing? Uh, it was a band called Alice in Chains. Of course. And the new album. And so the whole point of the drawing was a record review. But the album, I bought it, and it was just great rock and roll, but there was nothing conceptual. So I did some sort of kind of conceptual drawing of the face of the singer being cut up in, in puzzle pieces and then those rearranged. I was so afraid, and this is a big thing with illustration, like you do a sketch and then the final doesn't live up to the sketch. This is kind of like the, the biggest curse for, for illustrators. And I was aware of that, so I made a final to make sure I can actually pull off a final, but then I thought, I can't send in a final. So I did a rough sketch of the final and sent that in to make sure I can really deliver. And then they accepted it to my um, amazement. And then, But I did, then I did another final, of course, needed to be better. But it was just like, I think it was like 30% work and 70% trying to manage my nervousness. Is that the way your life goes, Christoph? No, because that would be just not sustainable. And when I, when I started coming here and then working for, um, for the Times op-ed page, where like one hour deadline is kind of your daily job, you cannot live like that for longer than a month, even when you're like in your mid-20s and you're capable of like mentally of other things. And there was a great experience to realize that even that is craft, that even that is learnable. In 1997, immediately after you graduated, you moved to New York City. And Steve Heller, the great art director, design critic, and educator said this about his first meeting with you. I recall the first time I saw his work, a booklet of satiric computer icons created while he was a student. These were not just facile puns, but seen as a whole, a veritable satire on the computer revolution. His keen ability to go beyond the one-off pictorial gag into a realm of visual profundity convinced me to assign him what became dozens of illustrations for the New York Times book review. He never let me down either. With few exceptions, his myriad solutions were as smart as the scores of articles he illustrated. Occasionally, they conveyed much more. What was it like to first meet Steve, such a young illustrator with such a revered and yet another legend, and him assigning and giving you work? I mean, it was great. I learned about the New York design scene through books, you know, through yearbooks like the graffiti and American Illustration and so forth. And then, of course, you start seeing that Steve Heller and Fred Woodward and Nicholas, they're like, their names are under basically 90% of all the drawings at the time. And, you know, Steve, with this incredible history, first at the op-ed page and then at, uh, at the book review, he was just like one of the, I didn't even have an opinion. He was just like one of these gods where you feel like, he rules the world, which he which Still he does. does. Yeah. And the incredible thing was that he would see almost anybody who would call him. And the meeting often was at six thirty. It was like this. Like I learned it was like this, this running gag. Like oh, so you you will get an interview with Steve Heller, but it might be at a, a crazy time of the day. And six thirty in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because they, they, he wakes I, up, but he doesn't sleep. Basically, he doesn't sleep, and then he writes a book until five, and then he starts <laughs> seeing people. Um, <laughs> And he, he just like, you know, of course he has seen everything. So he was like very friendly. Um, and he was always very friendly. It was, he, he, he's a friend. So he's, he's like. He's the most generous person on the planet. Such a generous person. And, but it was, it was really amazing. And in all the time that we worked, it was always like, oh, that's nice. Oh, thank you. And it was almost that you think, oh, he just like, he's just nice. And then he just accepts what you do. But then whenever there was a weakness in a drawing, he was just like, yeah, but this thing here on the left or like this idea doesn't really 
it doesn't really work. So you would totally see everything. You could, you could not cheat. You know, not that I wanted to cheat, but he would just find the weakness in everything. And um, well, you know, he's Make a great art. Yeah. He's a great art director. Really, kind of like, like we would find ways to uh, to fix it. I understand that early on in your stay in New York, you lived and worked in some very uncomfortable circumstances, as it's been written. And at one point, you ended up in Beth Israel Hospital for nearly two weeks. What what happened? Um, there were exciting uh, places to live in the East Village on, on, on between C and D on Seventh. It was a, it was a great place. And then I lived on on, on Broadway, and a shared place with a couple of other people and. You know, it was in a railroad apartment, and in the back of the very, in the very back of the railroad apartment, it was something that really looked like the Unabomber hut. It was like a little wooden cage with a with a little window out into the living room, and the people were nice, but they had a band, and uh, there were dogs, and there were televisions. Was, there was always like a lot of action, and that's where I got my first job. So I really had to focus, and I had a small drawing desk, but my my computer, I didn't have space for the computer on my drawing desk, so the computer was sitting on a chest. And so when I worked on the computer, I had to have my knees kind of to the left and have my whole body <laughs> twisted. Given is, how tall you are, are you six six? Is six that four, right? yeah. Six four. So when you do that for twenty minutes, it's fine. When you do that continuously for a couple of weeks, it's not good. And there was like at the very end of the year, and um, I knew I had, I had a new place in, in, in Soho after that. Um, and I think it was like the moment where the pressure went off, where I just like started feeling queasy, and I ended up in in the hospital with a slip disc, and it was. There was a moment of me really sitting in my underpants on Broadway being carried down by by oh, um, by an ambulance. And it was it was like not great. But on the other hand, you know what other people go through. So it was like I survived. And after two weeks, I came back and just wanted to pick up my stuff. And the one thing I remember, there was my portfolio. And it was just like shoved behind the closet. And I was like, what's my portfolio doing there? I pulled it out. And it was like in a comic strip. The dog had eaten my portfolio and had eaten out chunks. So it was really like in a comic with like these little half circles for the teeth, chunks missing of my portfolio. And it was just like this moment of utter defeat because I felt so weak and beaten and just like you, the dog ate my portfolio. But at the same point, it was such a ridiculous joke. <laughs> I mean, it's I had funny to, now, but then... You know, no, it was, it was be... kind of funny then even because it was so over the top. And then I had a, like a month break and I was like back. My mom nursed me back and then I came back and it was, it was terrific. Despite these obstacles, you've stated it was surprising how easy you found working in an American context that 98% of the images that you created, not thinking about eventually showing them in the United States, worked one-to-one in the U.S. People seemed to understand the metaphors, the jokes, the responses were almost identical. Do you still think that's the case now that you're back in Berlin and working really globally? Probably much more so oh, than really? back then. Yeah, um, I mean that's really where the whole Magnum PI comes in. Um, I, I knew grew, we'd get back to I, Tom Selleck. I, um, you know, I grew up in West Germany where American culture was so prominent in everything from television, movies, music. If I would have tried to do the same thing in France, which is an hour and a half from where I grew up, I couldn't give you a single French TV show from the seventies or eighties, okay. or not even England or Italy or all the surrounding countries. And so much of what what we do is based on a shared cultural experience. And, of course, now through Instagram, Twitter, um, and the whole news cycle, it's a very English-based culture that we all share. I could still not give you a Greek, uh, uh, Indian, or Chinese TV show. But since, like, the English culture is kind of like the dominant one, there is now a global language. You can, like, whether it's a meme or... Um, 
even like like a certain visual language that's being shared globally. And so that actually makes it even easier today than it ever was. When you first came to New York, and I would imagine it was your second portfolio after the, the dog incident, I read that your original portfolio didn't showcase one specific visual style or technique. And I understand you had everything in there from vector graphics to pixel drawings. But the common denominator was that the centerpiece of all your work has an idea. So much so that you stated that if someone approached you with a fixed idea about what they wanted, the conversation was pretty much over. Why? Frankly, because I, I knew they had the wrong person. And I would tell them often. And, and not in a confrontational way, like, oh, I would never can I execute your drawing. But I feel there isn't a lot of incredible kind of crafts people out there. If you have a concept and you need to kind of execute it in watercolor oil or wooden sculpture, there's people for that. And my talents would be more in kind of coming up with a concept and then trying to find a style within my limitations to, to make it come alive. What limitations? Limitations are good. They're, I mean, I still struggle with my limitations. And, you know, like there's in any kind of drawing, once you want to draw, as with anything, you're constantly aware of the stuff that you cannot do. On the other hand, you know that often in that limitation, interesting stuff happens because what makes a drawing or a concept interesting is that something unexpected is happening. And if I was able to take what's in my head and put it on paper really one-to-one, it would be boring. Often it's 90% correct but 10% off. And these 10% where your hand does something that your mind didn't think of, that's where you sometimes open a door into something that's really surprising. Let's go back to your history, and then we're going to go deeply into the way you work. 2001 was a big year for you. You had your first New Yorker cover, and you met and married your wife, Lisa. Since that time, you've had three children. You've illustrated nearly 30 covers for The New Yorker. I counted them last night, as well as several columns for The New York Times, covers for The New York Times Magazine, New York Magazine, and Wired, illustrations for the Museum of Modern Art, National Geographic, and so forth. You've published 13 books, numerous apps, and frankly, that's the short list, Christoph. So after your internships with Paul and Paula, you were never officially employed full-time again. It's true. Talk about your first New Yorker cover. What was the process like? How did you feel when you were, when you were assigned a cover? How does it work? No, you're never assigned a cover. It's an open contest. And when you know Francoise, and when you, you basically anybody can send it a sketch. But of course, it's, it's so much about trust. You know, they want to know that you can actually execute it. So if you, if you know her, if you're kind of in the system a little bit, which you get by kind of sending in stuff. Um, and I had worked for a New Yorker before. We talked and July 4th was, you know, that's a recurring theme, the, the, something about fireworks or barbecue. And then I just started sending in work. And I think that was not even the first one. I think I'd worked on some Martin Luther King uh, holiday ones before. And it just didn't work out because you know, the chances are pretty slim. How it's, many covers would they get for a specific issue? Oh, you don't want to know. It's a lot. Really? Yeah. So it's just illustrators all over the world sending in work because yeah, they... Yeah, sketches. Sketches. Yeah. It's a conversation start. And then you kind of start to kind of mold that idea into something. And it's a, it's a back and forth. And... Francoise is a great art director. She has a, such a great sensibility of what the cover does. And, and also like the long narrative. You know, you know, not only one cover, but really like the cover week after week. So all these things are uh, taken into consideration. 
So if you have an idea, Barry Blitt might have an idea and Paul Sayre might have an idea and everybody's sending in their ideas and then Francoise picks the ideas that she likes best. Is that how it works? Well, and there's also David Remnick who yes, has the final course. say. So yes, the editor in chief. It's a it's a system. <laughs> and I I know I'm extremely. It, it really has to do a lot with luck. It's it's it's, it's no. It's just that's such a troubling to, word for me. It is. It, well, you can, you can increase luck by just trying a lot, and that will increase your chances for luck to to work out. But I just know that a lot of people send in incredible ideas, and that there's no scale of brilliance. And then, if you hit kind of like above 17, or if you have the most brilliant cover this week, it will end up on the cover. It's just you know for that, it's too much of a human subjective process, and it's a good thing. But um, I can see how this process can be incredibly frustrating. It's been frustrating for me. I had, I was lucky a lot of times. It's still frustrating when you have an idea where you think, oh come on, that would be so good and so right. Um, it's a system I have not figured out, let's see. Well, with nearly 30 covers, something must be working. In one of your 13 books, the monograph of sorts titled Sunday Sketching, you state that for anything decent you've ever done, you distinctly remember being in a tense and grumpy mood. Even worse, you get suspicious when you're having too good of a time working since you know this doesn't bode well for the outcome. Why? I got to say like that the the book was based a little bit on that sentiment and me trying to figure out why that is because I realized it was actually bearing down on my work and was making me unhappy and I want to make fun work I want to make uh, work that inspires or makes you think or that in general can like create some sort of like a positive or like emotional experience and I think a um a common and natural mistake is that you think that the emotion that you want to convey in a drawing you would have as you create it. So let's say you do a surprising idea that the idea happens in a surprising way. You sit there and go, woo-woo, and then it just like it sits on the page, and that's just not the case. And that's, that's frustrating. And so I think when you feel too um, kind of enchanted by your own process and by your drawing, it distracts you from what you're trying to do. And what, what you're trying to do is really... You have an idea, you put it on paper, you judge it as you draw it, you put it back into your, through your eyes, into your head, and then your hand does a second iteration. So it's a, it's, a, it's a circular process. And this process requires a huge amount of almost physical effort. It's mental effort, but it feels like physical effort. And when you run or when you do any kind of physical exercise, like usually when you're, when you're putting in your full effort, you're, you're tense. And, and so I think tension is a good thing. It shouldn't turn into kind of like outright depression, but... Um, I think it's, I love this job, but just because the end result might mm. be funny, the process isn't funny. You've actually said that the more playful something looks, the more gruesome the process is for you. Is that still the case? Yes, usually, usually it is. And it's, you know, gruesome makes it sound terrible, but let's say a drawing that has a very swift feel. You, you have to, you cannot, like a certain brush stroke, you cannot slow that down. It really has to kind of come in one swoop. And when you have five or six brush strokes, that means the sixth one might ruin the whole drawing. And so that's a very, it's a, it's a very tense situation. And um, just like this fear of messing things up, it kind of, like, of course, it, it, uh, it weighs on you. Your grumpy mood has very little to do with the creative challenge in front of you. It seems to be more of a cloud of generic fears that included the following, and I'm, I'm quoting you from your book. One, I'm not good enough. Two, my work is irrelevant and soon I'll be broke. Three, 
I'm out of ideas. That actually doesn't just apply to Christoph. I think there's not one creative person I've ever interviewed, except maybe Massimo Vignelli and Milton Glaser, who don't suffer from those things. And I think the only reason those guys haven't or didn't was because when I interviewed them, they were in their 80s. Yeah. So really, those things plague you? I can't even imagine how you, Christoph Neiman, you know, one of the greatest illustrators of our time, is plagued by those fears. You're not good enough, your work is irrelevant, and you'll be broke, and you're out of ideas. Frankly, I think if they wouldn't plague me, I would be in big trouble. Because how can you work creatively if you don't worry about these things? And again, worry is a relative uh, term, but... One of our curses and and the most wonderful thing about our profession is that we cannot repeat ourselves. So everything that we do that's great means we can never do it again. But can't you rely on yourself to be able to continue to hit it out of the ballpark? No, because, you know, I guess when you're a heart surgeon and you do an operation 200 times, I guess you get a better feel for texture for your hands. You you feel like, okay, you've been in tough situations and your chance to kind of do a good job will increase. But... For us, it's really you do something great and you cannot repeat it because that thing is off limits. It must be even worse for writers. I mean, there's the curse of the second book. You've done a book and then it's great and you sit there and you know everybody will even measure you. You just want to be a new writer again who can, who's allowed to write a first book, which you're not. Yeah, same thing with musicians and their second album. Joni Mitchell once joked that nobody ever asked Van Gogh to play a, a story night again. Yeah, it's, <laughs> And of course, it's great. I mean, this is how we get to work because we get to reinvent and redo. But so I think in general, this questioning yourself and not being able to rest on your law is, is extremely important. But I found that since what I do is, you know, it's sitting at your desk. So you're there with your thoughts and with your, with your tools. There's a lot of thinking going on. And the thinking should be about what's happening on the page. And I think it's important to think about relevance. I think it's very important for, for us to think about where our industry goes and where, where is our place in that and to observe what's happening, what's, her, what's happening in technology, in media, in language, in, in, in communication. But the moment I sit there to do a drawing, I shouldn't be thinking about that. Then I just have to think about what I do. And I'm very aware of my shortcomings in terms of drawing. I mean, I, I was at the Met yesterday looking at the, the Lacroix exhibition, and you know that's really putting the bar insanely high, but you just look at these drawings, and you know there's a long way to go to artistic excellence. Then again, when I sit down to draw, I only have what I have. So it's absolutely pointless to beat myself up about, oh, I should have spent more time drawing feet. Um, <laughs> just you know, I, I have to do with, with what I got. You outline these fears in Sunday sketching and talk about what sometimes we tell ourselves about these tropes and sometimes what we should do instead. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about all three because I think there's such interesting stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and what is good or isn't good. How do you get out of the I'm not good enough trope? Well, the thing with all of these, they're they're relevant. And the I'm not good enough it's just true. And you practice, you work. And what I th- thought was, was fascinating with, with our profession, especially compared to musicians or, or athletes, we go to art school. And when I went to art school, I sat down every day with all the students. You do something, you critique it, you go back and you feel, oh, I have to improve this. You, you, know, you make a printmaking course and then you have a teacher who tells you how to do it and you do it again and you realize how you're getting better at it or you're avoiding mistakes. And so 
each year you realize you're getting better at it. And the moment you're done, you make your portfolio, you work all the time, and hopefully you're getting better, but basically you spend all your time performing. You never sit down and say, oh, I should kind of rethink how I draw pants. Everything is done on assignment. And I think that's dangerous because you basically, of course, people only ask you to do the thing that you're already good at. So it's kind of like the self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of the direction your work is going. And when you practice, you find new directions. You made a comment early on in our interview that I let slide by only knowing I was going to be bringing it back up. And that was the notion of talent. You've said that your approach to work is 95% effort and 5% talent. And though it's tempting to think as a creative professional, you just sit there and you're creative, so much of it is doing it every day for hours. You work every day from 9 to 6. You have banker's hours, essentially. Talk about this 95% effort, 5% talent, because, Christoph, while I'd like to think that's true, given my own level of talent, I, and I mean that in a pejorative way, I can't believe that you're as successful as you are because you work hard. I just don't accept that. I got to say, that I, I've, I've been thinking about that, and I, I think I, I need to modify that a little bit. And the, not the part with the effort. That's just absolutely true. But the working hard makes it sound like we all have kind of like the same abilities, and we sit down, right. and there's somebody who's kind of like whacking away harder and chiseling on that I mean, if that's all it took, I'd be happy to work 23 hours a day to have your talent. I really yeah, would. No, but, but the process of what we do is inherently frustrating. Because when we design, when we draw, when we create anything, when we do a radio show, we have our aspirations, and our aspirations is informed by the stuff we love. So we see that like, what we do at the beginning might not be as good as we want it to be. Or when I, you know, when I think of a new cover for The New Yorker, it's not that everything I do, I think, oh, they should print this. Of course, I sit there and I'm like, oh, God, I can't send this in. And the reason is it's just not good enough. So now comes the question, why do I keep going? Because I really want to. And I think, and really, that, that I would say is a talent that I love the idea of something that works so much that I'm able to absorb the frustration. And I think somebody else would give up, not because they're not, you know, they don't have this magical ability to do something easily, but it's like with me with cooking, I get frustrated after eight minutes. <laughs> and it's not, I'm sure my hands would probably be perfectly fine to do some decent cooking. But I'm too easily frustrated. And I think real talent is, is the ability to deal with frustration. There might be some a little bit artistic ability in terms of like how you can visualize something. But that's really, I think, I'm absolutely convinced that's negligible. But um, this dealing with this moment of like kind of starting again and again and again, and most importantly, not getting bitter about it, but maintaining this kind of like, oh, what if it works out next time? Um, this kind of childlike attitude. This is something you cannot teach. I think you can teach everything, but you know, if somebody doesn't have this excitement, there's no point. It's just too difficult. So the idea of making something is bigger than your fear of failure. It's just the, the addiction for that kick. When you look at art or when you, also when you do something yourself, sometimes you see something's working. Sometimes you only see it after two weeks. Sometimes you see like these two big pieces and they're falling into place and you know something's 
something just happened that might be better than others. It's a kick. It's it's difficult to describe. It's like you know, like having that first cup of coffee in the morning, and just like it's you just realized something good happened, and this is super exciting. And when you, when that doesn't work, you I want more of that, and that's why it's never any kind of um, success you have. It's you know it's not that you're satisfied and you thought oh now I I had a cover I'm fine with that now I've I've lived that this is kind of like an ongoing addiction. In regard to the second item on the list, the my work is irrelevant and soon I'll be broke trope, you suggest focusing on doing good work. You go on to state that even in the absence of talent and inspiration, you can, through sheer practice, become so good at art that you reliably deliver very good work. Now, great work, that's something else. So, Christoph, how do you get to great work? And you said it sometimes takes you two weeks to really understand what you're doing. How do you know when something is good versus great? I don't, and probably I'm not even the perfect judge for it. I don't work for myself. There's some things I work for my, I, I do for myself, like the travel drawings I do for myself. Well, but Sunday sketching started out as an experiment for yourself. I, I, I did it as an experiment for myself, but the drawings are still, you cannot surprise yourself. These are ideas that are supposed to work for other people. Okay. And so when you tell jokes or when you tell sad stories, you, you don't want to cry or laugh yourself. You want to make an audience cry or laugh. That's the measure. And if you do a, draw, uh, a story and then you think that stories, but then all of a sudden everybody breaks out in tears. You go, wait wait a minute, maybe something interesting was happening there. And if you think this was the funniest joke in the world and everybody sits there stone-faced and it's bad. So is it, though? Is it, though? Sometimes do you think people just aren't getting it? Or is that, our, is that the failing of the, of the maker, that people aren't getting what you think they should be able to get? Well, I, I think in the end, like my goal as an artist mostly is to work for an audience. So um, I can complain, but you know, if my goal is to make them kind of cause an emotional reaction, and and I, and it doesn't, it doesn't. I can still say, oh, I don't care. I believe in it so much that I'm keep doing it. But maybe I failed for the next twenty years, and then everybody will realize how brilliant it was <laughs> ahead of its time. That's what I'm hoping for me. Um, so let's talk about social media. You've written this. Any person who claims to not be flattered when a post receives a lot of likes, or claims to not be flattered when a post receives a lot of likes, or who claims to not feel the least bit insecure when a post fails flat, is lying. Like anyone whose career precedes Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, I know how it feels to work with barely any reaction from my audience. I consider social media a fascinating and maybe indispensable opportunity. But you ask that we can easily be manipulated with our own insecurity and vanity if we equate likes and faves with quality. Sometimes you think it's the opposite. So that's sort of the question I was asking. Like, you... You can be surprised by the quantity of people liking something that you don't think is as good as something that doesn't get as many likes. And I don't know that it's necessarily about people getting it or not getting it. And I'm not exactly sure what it is, but I remember talking to Amanda Palmer, the musician, who said something very similar, something that she puts a lot of effort in and that she thinks is really important and everybody should pay attention to doesn't get as much attention as something that's easy and maybe has kittens in it, and then suddenly everybody's going crazy for it. No, but you know, when, when I say that ultimately the reaction of an audience is what matters, I still believe that the problem is that social media only covers a tiny fraction, or let's say a small fraction of that. 
right now it's what works in three by three inches, like the square. And when you do a, a huge painting, it can be beautiful, but it might not translate on a small screen. So when I post that, it might just get a very small reaction. And if I do something that's crisp and small, just like or let's say I do a huge flower uh, flower pot with like a like a, a hundred flowers, or I do one flower, the one flower might get more likes just because it's more recognizable or or, or understandable in a small format. It has nothing to do with the quality. It just has something to do with the format of a smartphone and with the way we swipe through our Instagram feed. There's something that stops you, but something that takes more than two and a half seconds, something that might take also longer. Maybe there's some things that you like, you know, like a book that you read or a movie that you see, that you, you would click that like button, but a week later, because it has to work in your brain and has to like put some cogs in motion that you don't even, that you're not even aware of. And Instagram and Twitter and Facebook are not built for that. After 10 years in New York, you and Lisa and your children moved back to Germany, and you now live in Berlin. At the time, you were in your mid-30s. You were working very hard. You described it as fulfilled but exhausted. And you go on to state that the road ahead was not unpretty, but for two snags. It was depressingly predictable, and it required the equivalent of continually winning the lottery for the next 50 years. What do you mean by that? So when I, when I came here, I was in my mid-20s, and there were all these people that were like, you know, 35, 40, and they were just crazy. They lived in places. They had lives that I've never seen, and I was just, oh, my God, look at the possibilities. And I still love New York. I love being here. I have so many close friends here, but as you kind of grow older, I realized, okay, you have kids, and now it's like, the kindergarten, and then the moment you're in kindergarten, you have to think about, or the kids are in kindergarten, you're like, what middle school? It kind of goes all the way to college, and then when they're super successful, then it's about getting a house upstate or in, in, in the Hamptons, and even if you have the house in the Hamptons, you have to beat the traffic, so you can like start really leaving every Friday at 6 o'clock. <laughs> it's too stressful and for every, me. <laughs> and, but I realized everybody's doing that, and so even the super crazy, fantastic people, you know, um, even if, if Pollock was alive today, he would still have to beat the traffic on the LIE. And I realized that for me, the, the system here, and, and that has to do probably with, with the weakness of my character, that I couldn't, that I have to be inspired by other people, that I, I don't think I have the ball to break out of that. And to, I, mean, I could just invent a life for myself. But if the system around me is very structured for a certain, in a certain direction, I have a hard time to say, oh, I'm going to be totally different. I'm going to start pottery in, uh, on, on the banks of the Hudson River next week, and I don't care um, what, what, what other people do. And in, in Berlin, that seemed a lot more open. People do crazy stuff there. And so it's not only a question of the city being cheaper, but the whole, it's, you know, it's not as result-oriented, which can be extremely frustrating, but I just felt for me, because I'm so result-oriented, it was very healthy to kind of go in a place where the, the horizon was maybe not as kind of tall, but wider. At the time you stated being busy is a great excuse for not asking yourself where you are going and that moving to another continent in your 20s had been hard, expensive, and the most inspiring thing you had ever done. Now it was time to shake things up again. Were you scared? Of course. Yeah? Not, not terribly. I mean, I felt confident enough in my work that I, in 2018, you know, everything was like the, the internet and everything was well established enough. I realized that at the beginning of my work, you had to be within five miles of uh, Times Square. 
towards like you wouldn't get a job if you were not you know, in a in a zip code with a one zero or at least a one one. And it has changed. And I realized that even in the mid two thousands, there were like art directors would call people from anywhere. They wouldn't even like, people were emailing. For the first couple of years, I was on the phone all the time. Then right. I completely stopped by, by then. I was probably more scared about where the work would go and whether I would, because I had promised myself, like, with that move, I know that for a freelancer, change doesn't happen. You have to be the agent of your change. No client ever tells you, oh, we love what you do. Please do something completely different. You have to be the one who, who starts that. And that's very difficult. And let's say I was very curious whether I would have the balls to do that. to break, really? Yeah, to break... I love my job. I love the deadlines, the, the whole magazine, newspaper world. Just, I love everything about that. And to kind of step away from that a little bit and start with like self-initiated stories, it's difficult. And especially when you feel there's the other world that lures you in, like you know how to do it. People call you. I mean, you. your career was at, at peak at that point. Yeah, and, it's still peaking, but and, and, you know, everything you, was really great. You have art directors who trust you. like you know, And then you do something and something doesn't work out. You know, would I have the balls to still pursue it or say, ah, no, I'll go back to just full editorial? When you moved to Berlin, you started a visual column for The New York Times with Brian Ray, who was the art director of the Opinion page at the time. But you were initially reluctant to take on that column, which I was really surprised to discover. Why is that? Well, the, the assignment was to come up with my own stories. And even though I always try to put in my own point of view in my drawings, it was always based on somebody else's story, on something on politics or culture or um, the economy. And all of a sudden you have to say, here's something interesting, dear reader. It was like, do I have interesting stories? You know, I spend my time working and just trying to kind of put the kids to bed at night and, and riding the subway. I didn't see how... There was enough kind of material to tell an interesting story. And there was it was a fun learning curve. But there, there was the reason why I felt like, you know, what should I write about? I, I would have to kind of sail to Hawaii first and come back with a, with, a, with a great adventure. It seems like it was the perfect timing in a lot of ways for you wanting to stretch yourself and try something new and then being given this opportunity to do that. Yeah, and it was also a great time in... In media, where the, the Times is very forward-thinking with really pushing for this kind of original, very very subjective content because it, it's really more a conversation with the reader, whereas the classic editorial model, even in opinion writing, had been like you have one sender and a million listeners. Like, oh, hey, guys, let, let me explain you how the world works. And this this whole format is, of course, beautiful about really like being on eye level with the reader and not so much telling them a story about your life, but having a conversation like you're sitting at a bar and you're exchanging anecdotes. That's really more the format. That was when, so you did your column, Jeff Scher, the experimental filmmaker, did his column, Myra Kelman did her Incredible. column. I mean, yeah. it was really breaking a whole yeah. lot of new ground in editorial and, and design. In regard to the third item on your list, the I'm out of ideas trope, you state the following, which I think a lot of our listeners will relate to. You say, for me, there is very often this feeling of thinking that right at the start, I need a big idea. I get to this desperate state where I feel like, how will I ever make it again? For me, I have to make little unspectacular steps, step by step, and then if I'm lucky, it will happen again. No, I don't need a big idea. I need 1,000 small steps, 1,000 steps ahead, 500 steps back, 700 steps to the right, and then I will end up somewhere. Christoph, I think that's one of the most 
beautiful definitions of the creative process I've ever come across. (laughs) And I think it'll give a lot of people hope to know that it's very rare to have that big idea at the outset. And, and people wait for it, and then it keeps you paralyzed. Yeah, and again, I think, I think it, it's all based on this confusion of experiencing an idea and creating it. And of course, for the reader, you want this moment, like the, kind of like the, the light bulb going off and, and the, this moment of surprise. But the building of the surprise is really it's laying a trap, building a scenario that all of a sudden you end up looking at the right angle at the right moment, and then uh, the, the sun comes up. Somebody has to plant the sun there and it's like very heavy and you have to kind of put the trees at the right point. And this is a lot of work um, for then the reader having this kind of two-minute, uh, two-second epiphany. In your book, you talk about how you can help make it happen, how you can try to actually create that alchemy or make that alchemy. I mean, you suggest the following. Take what you know and expose it to what you don't know and observe what happens. Open your mind as wide as you can and check out every connection between any two elements. When does the click happen? Christoph? when do you know that this is something? It's a mix of experience and then having the great luck of having a few people that you trust that you can show it to. Because it's so, in the heat of the moment, often you don't know. I mean, I mean I, drawing is such a solitary experience. Yeah, but I have, you know, I have my wife, I have Nicholas Blackman. We email all the time. I send him stuff and just like these weird doodles. And often it's just, what do you see? Because so much of these ideas are based on having a certain setup. When we tell a joke and we say, a man walks to a bar. It's beautiful because we have a setup and we have an idea. And then, okay, we know from there the joke can uh, can start. Often ideas fail because we fail to establish a man walks into a bar. We think, oh, Leonardo DiCaprio walks into a restaurant, which technically is a man walking into kind of a bar. But then the reader is totally off. Then right. you know, if you just want to make a joke uh, about you know, like the dog still being at home and the reader thinks of an actor or a specific restaurant, then it's all, then it's all bad. So... For that, you need somebody else to tell you, like, look, less specific, more specific, you know. Um, and I think having a a small group of people that know how to critique you is a huge asset. I couldn't imagine doing my job without people I can call without, you know, apologies and say, oh, I really, could you maybe in the next two days have five minutes for me? And you need somebody who can just send something and get an answer back in 10 minutes. The painful yet crucial struggle remains, and you write, to create in a childlike and open-hearted manner, but to be unwistful and cruel when judging your own work. And you've stated that in your work, you have to perform two opposing roles, artist versus editor. So do you literally have to play the role of each separately, or can you weave in and out of artist-editor? I actually think the more you separate them, the better it is. Yeah. Because the editing needs to be really harsh. But if your your attitude is about, oh, people won't get that. Oh, this is not drawn well enough or it's too it's drawn too with too much vanity. This is not how you can work. Like the work itself has to be flowing, has to be so much is about something unexpected happening and you being alert enough to catch that moment of uh, unexpectedness. So you need this kind of exuberant, kind of crazy, unpredictable and also extremely inefficient way of working. But then once you have created something, you need something where you can like completely get rid of that artistic persona. And I think if you mix them, and when you work under extreme deadlines, you have to mix them because you don't have the luxury um, of doing it. So you 
kind of have to evaluate as you think, oh, can I actually execute this in, a, in, a, in the right amount of time? But in the perfect world, it's almost like, you know, one day this and one day that. All of these ideas and the fears that I've been sharing that you've written about are most apparent in an ongoing project called Sunday Sketches. And we've talked about the book, Sunday Sketching. But the notion of Sunday Sketches started way before it was a book. Can you talk about the origination of the endeavor? What made you decide to do this? Well, I had started to really take time apart for experiments. And the whole point of an experiment is that it doesn't have a goal, that you don't know what the outcome is. You're not trying to prove a thesis. You're just kind of working into the blue and to see if something interesting comes out of it. And then it was really a play, just like having objects on, on my desk. And this is something you know, I far from invented. It. You know, there's like great Steinbergs and Ungerers and probably even further back with this idea of taking objects and playing with it. What I try to do is not only taking an object, say scissors or cup, but turning the object and really playing with the particular light and the particular angle that's very off. So not only having kind of like a collage element, but really the actual object, because I feel that we're a little polluted by uh, stock imagery of like, say, we think of a palm tree. There's a certain kind of palm tree that when you Google palm tree, like the first five images that come up, that's the one we have in our minds. When we have, when we see a real palm tree, a real chair, it actually looks much different than that, especially when we look at it from a specific angle. It always looks off, you know, like its shadows are crazy. And But this is really our emotional connection to these objects. And I try to play with that and then add a little drawing where all of a sudden the shadow, the light of this particular moment completely changes the meaning of that object. But because it's so weird, you, you feel so familiar with this object. And But the, the idea was to create an image that then feels so completely um, Inevitable. right. Inevitably right. Um, and that's why that was very um, exciting. And, you know, I'm, I'm critical of social media, but social media is great for a lot of things. And that was something I shared then instantly on Instagram. And to see that people would get that stuff, that you know, even very subtle things or something where I feel like, am I the only one who kind of gets that connection? It was gorgeous to see that in real time without, you were an editor, it's like two weeks between the creation and getting some sort of feedback, if you ever do. In this case, it was, it was instant. And that's, that's your genius, Christoph. You are the only one that gets the connection. But as soon as you make it apparent, everybody realizes that it was there all along. And that's what is so amazing about your work. You can see a hula dress in a paintbrush. You can see horse's legs in a banana. And I'm not, this is actual stuff I'm referring to. You can see a woman's legs in scissors. It's incredible. And I, I look at your work and I think, wouldn't it be amazing if we could just all see the world like this all the time? Oh, God, it would be, first of all, it would be terribly exhausting. Um, oh, it would be fun. Uh, no, but honestly, I think the creative enjoyment is because readers are so much more visually able than they've been cre given credit uh, to in such a long time. I actually have realized in this conversation that looking at your work makes me feel smarter <laughs> about myself. <laughs> no, but, but, but that's, I, that's an amazing thing to be able to do for someone. No, but I, I think this is you know, when when we read a book uh, and we cry, it's not because the writer was able to kind of infer their sadness onto us. I think the best thing a writer can do is unlock 
something that's present in you. And I think that's also the beauty of art. I mean, that's this idea of talent that you love that kick so much that you feel, I want to do that. Christoph, the last thing I want to talk with you about is your latest project, a book and an exhibition titled Hopes and Dreams. Describe the book for us. Well, the, a year ago, my editor and, and, and friend in, in Switzerland, Philip Kiel, who's, who's a great, he's like an editor. He's basically my age, but he's from a, from a different era, just beautiful and generous. And um, and he called me and said, I'm going to L.A. next week to meet uh, David Hockney, who he knows and he does projects with. Do you want to join me? And I've never, I always dreamed of just like, oh, I'm going to jump on an airplane. It was the first time in my life where I bought a ticket four days later. I was on the plane and I was in L.A. and... Um, I spent these four days drawing and, you know, you, you buy yourself in L.A. with a jet lag. And I tried to put all these thoughts very, very subjectively um, together. And that's a show now. And I turned it into a book because I love books. And um, with all the digital stuff going on, just like having something so incredibly analog in the drawings is, is very exciting. The cover of the book has no title and no byline, something you said you couldn't have done if you hadn't published the book yourself. What made you decide to do that? Uh, time. Because, what, what do you mean? Well, I wanted it now. I wanted I wanted it with the show, and it just felt um, now was the time where I wanted to kind of have it out there. And it was basically five weeks from wow. let's, let's do this to... Um, and I have a fantastic uh, designer that I've been working with on, on Sunday Sketching, and she knew... Who's oh, that? Uh, Ariana Spanier. He's, she's a fantastic designer and working on catalogs and books. And she's also, you know, the ones... And I'm always like, oh, I work by myself. But you need somebody who, first of all, has the, the a, a different visual angle on something, but also technical uh, uh, skills. Or in, in her case, she's like, oh, I know this crazy printer in Sweden who has a new printing technology. I wouldn't know. And she just pulled these people out of the head who just, it's a new printing technology. And now we're going to technical, like uncoated paper, but you have deep blacks. And this is, you know, this, of course... Uh, I wish my listeners could see how excited you look at this moment. Why the title Hopes and Dreams? Well, there there's something for me about being in L.A. where it's all about you know, being a star. And being a star, I think, has a lot to do with vanity, maybe getting outside validation for, for what you do. But when I see it in L.A., you start thinking, what what's the point of all this? You know, like of reaching for stardom where it almost feels like it becomes its own its own value, where the work that you do to become a star in something almost kind of takes the, the second place back to just achieving like awards. And, and what was so incredible about meeting Hockney is that there's this guy who has, I assume, you know, doesn't have to worry about money and, and, and fame and anything. And when he talks about painting, he just, you know, that's the thing he loves. And the idea of like going through all of that, being in this crazy world, and coming out at the other end and still being excited about that, you know, not having that broken by this whole system and by the search for fame or, uh, I gotta say, that's uh, if there's a life goal, that probably would be it. My last question is this. I know you love to sleep, and when you sleep, you prefer to do it while spooning. You've been spooning on an almost professional level for close to 20 years, you've stated, but in all this time, you've never figured out what to do with your bottom arm. I'm wondering if you have any tips. The best tip I have is like if you have two pillows, a little harder one on the bottom, a softer one on top. And if they're like slightly off, you can kind of, for at least for an hour or two, squeeze your arm, 
kind of in that gap between your wife's pillow and and, and mine. So I, I have a I have a, I have a spot there. It doesn't strangely I should know by now, but it doesn't work every day. Some some days it works. Christoph Neiman, thank you for making the world such a visually witty and wonderful place. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Great pleasure. Thank you. You can find out more about Christoph Neiman on his website, ChristophNeiman.com. You also must follow him on Instagram at Abstract Sunday. And his new show and exhibit and book is titled Hopes and Dreams, and it debuts at the Zier Smith Gallery in New York City. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.